Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Well, welcome everybody that's uh, joined us today to the first uh, show, live talk on uh, Pituitary World News Radio. Uh, we're very excited about this, uh, and uh, uh, welcome to all. And I want to welcome my partner and co-founder of Pituitary World News and co-host, uh, Dr. Lewis Blevins. Hi, Lewis. How are you today? Hi, Jorge. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Good, good. So, so first, a, a couple of uh, things we are um, expecting to see Dr. Aggie here soon in the next 10, 15 minutes. First, we're going to chat about a few things. But uh, I wanted to uh, let everybody know that we have, we are using some new technology today. So um, uh, we probably will see some hiccups. Uh, we hope that we're all, you're all receiving us okay. Uh, and um, we're going to record this. So if you don't get a chance to hear the whole program, you're going to get a chance to to uh, play it as a podcast, and we're going to publish it a few days after each program. And we'll announce it on Pituitary World News, so you will be able to to hear it. Um, there is an option uh, for you uh, uh, in the audience to call in, um, uh, and uh, the the instructions will be self-explanatory. And you, we will see a message that you're calling in, and there'll be some questions to answer, and then we can let you into the studio to ask the question. We hope we can get um, enough people to call in. Uh, again, these, this technology is a bit new, so we're, we may have a few hiccups with the call-ins, but if you don't get to call in on this one, uh, there, there'll be other opportunities. We're going to do this weekly, uh, every Thursday at 3 p.m., and um, we will announce... Uh, as we go, the guests that are coming up and the, the and the subjects that we're going to be discussing. So, uh, as I was saying, if you don't get a chance to call in, please send us your comments and, and questions, and we'll get to them. We we learn a lot about what you from what you have to tell us, so then we can think about the types of programming that we'll bring to you. So, uh, I think with that, uh, oh, and also I would, uh, let me just say that from time to time. Uh, we're going to sur send surveys and uh, uh, areas for you to be able to comment on the program, and uh, so you can send us your ideas for guests and subjects that you want to discuss. I think I already uh, covered that. So, um, so Dr. Blevins, what how's how's how was the day today? You had a it was a busy day in clinic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, sort of periodically thought about the radio show and looking forward to this uh, adventure that we've started on. As many of you know, with Pituitary World News, our goal has been to engage people with pituitary diseases, their family members, their physicians, and other healthcare providers so that we can uh, interact and share knowledge and uh, lead people to the right place for knowledge. And uh, we've done that through different avenues, including podcasts, videos, patient uh, conferences, uh, articles, and, and things of the like that focus on patient stories, uh, uh, technology and uh, pharmacy, if you would, and uh, and also general medical advice. And this radio show came out of our discussions about how can we take it to the next level and engage people differently. 
and uh, we're excited about this opportunity. I don't think there's ever been a disease-specific radio show. Uh, I certainly remember years ago uh, hearing on the radio different uh, health shows where they were basically focused on general medical problems, uh, where you could call in and talk and get the doctor's advice about something. But uh, this is really the first of its kind uh, that uh, focuses on a disease state. We have a lot to talk about. There's so many things that we can discuss uh, and review, and uh, we, we hope to be able to have something fresh and interesting uh, each week. We'll have guests each week. The format of this show, we'll start talking about different uh, aspects of pituitary diseases or maybe what's new uh, or something interesting that we've learned, and then we'll have a guest that'll talk about a specific topic, and then the last 20 minutes or so will be to focus on uh, questions from the audience. And uh, we prefer short questions about specific things, not uh, a review of my case and tell me what you think I should do next type things. But uh, it's okay to talk about your own medical problems and ask a, a specific question in, the, in the relation to that. But remember, uh, as we have disclosed in the past, we are not giving medical advice or something that should be taken to, to indicate that we have provided medical care. Uh, we can advise you things that you might discuss with your physician, but we're not providing any direct medical care through this program, and you should verify and validate anything that you see and hear from anybody on this particular radio show. Yeah, yes, uh, absolutely, definitely. Well, we're, I think we're very excited uh, because we have, I think, a fantastic list, and today we have a fantastic guest uh, uh, with us. So uh, I'm going to let uh, uh, Dr. Blevins take over and uh, and have a chat with our guest and introduce him as we... But I think we were going to cover a few other things earlier, no? Before that. Uh, that's all right. So yeah. uh, basically, Dr. Manish Aghi is a professor of neurological surgery at UCSF, and he's one of our pituitary surgeons, probably the most scholarly amongst all of us who do pituitary disease at, uh, at UCSF. And uh, I've uh, worked with him on literally hundreds, if not a thousand cases that we've dealt with uh, since he joined the faculty probably about 10 or 12 years ago now. And um, he has published in the field of pituitary disorders uh, regarding headaches. And uh, we've had a lot of discussions uh, regarding that he did a, a, a video for us probably about eight years ago or seven years ago now that uh, I think is probably one of the most viewed videos that we have ever had or done, uh, more than anything. So it's a very popular topic with regards to headaches and pituitary tumors. And we know that not everybody with pituitary tumors have a headache. Jorge, you're a case of, uh, of, of that where you had a very large invasive tumor and I don't recall you having headaches due to your tumor or due to acromegaly, right? No, no, that that's right. You know, I don't recall having headaches that were out of the ordinary from sinus headaches or cold headaches or things like that, normal headaches that you would get, but not anything. I think uh, I had a more of a headache uh, trying to organize the show that I ever had from my, from my pituitary, from pituitary tumor. tumor. Yeah. So but, you, got a, you got a headache from your tumor anyways. But, then. but it it's, fasci like, yeah. it's fascinating because it's, you know, it just shows how different each you know, case is. And, yeah. and and I, was, I remember a patient that I saw uh, within the first couple of months of joining the faculty at UCSF 15 years ago who had a 7-millimeter uh, Rathke cleft cyst and had headaches that were intolerable, unbearable, leading to suicidal ideation. And we removed her cyst and her headaches went completely away. Completely so away, yeah. small cyst, life-threatening headaches to 
large invasive tumor with no headaches. So Dr. Augie, thank you for joining us and I really appreciate that and uh, we look forward to your perspective. I wonder if you could share with us some of the, uh, your, some of the things that you've learned about headache in patients with pituitary tumors. Oh, thank you, thank you for having me. Um, well, um, we look back over a five-year period at about a thousand patients in our busy center and learned a lot when we did that. Um, first of all, the about one out of three patients who were coming to surgery listed headache as a, a complaint, a symptom of some kind. So this is common. Um, and although it's common in the general population, it's more common in pituitary tumor patients than in the general population, which is very interesting. Um, and uh, it didn't really correlate with the size of their tumor, as you both were alluding to. And other studies have found this as well, that if anything, it seems to be more common in the sweet spot right in the middle, like a centimeter or so a diameter tumor, then, um, then it becomes less common as they get bigger than that and um, maybe less common as they get really small. So hard for the um, treating provider to know necessarily whether it's related because they're more common in the general population. Uh, it's very common to have headaches. It's very common to have pituitary tumors. Uh, but interestingly, um, a large portion of patients, about 50% of them, will report some symptomatic relief when the, when the tumor is taken out. Um, and it, it's hard to imagine that that's just a placebo effect given that we were looking at well over 1,000 patients when we did this analysis. So let's talk about why people might get headaches. I remember many years ago, Baha Arafa, who at the time was, uh, I think at Case Western Reserve, did a study where he did intracellular manometry. And as the surgeon went in before they violated the cella too much, they took a, a little tiny drill bit and drilled a hole into the cella, inserted a manometer, and measured the pressure in the cella, presuming that tumors can increase the intracellular pressure. And what they found was that regardless of the size of the tumor, that those patients who had headaches tended to have an increase in the, uh, 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 in the intracellular pressure. Of course, when the surgeon removes the tumor, the pressure's down and the headaches were relieved in a number of those patients. Uh, are, are you aware of whether or not it might simply be pressure, or do you think that these tumors are stretching the diaphragm cellae, which of course is innervated by the the trigeminal nerve, and that might be sending pain messages back to the to the to the red brain than the thalamus. Uh, or what what do you think is going on? Is it a vascular headache? What are the different possibilities for headache in these patients? Yeah, there's a number of different possibilities. So when we look at structures in the vicinity that are innervated and can relay nerve uh, pain. As you mentioned, the diaphragma cella or even the dura over the tumor, the cellar dura, are innervated. And so one theory is that if there were increased intracellular pressure, it would transmit um, the sensation of pain. Um, it's referred pain because the, the tumor is nowhere near the face or the forehead or wherever they feel pain, uh, but it's referred because it's transmitted via some of those facial nerves. Um, so that's one theory. Second theory, um, is that it could be a vascular event. Um, there's a lot of uh, venous plexuses near the, uh, the pituitary, near the cella, and if those are compressed, um, it might create a sensation of pain um, because of innervation around venous plexuses. And then the third possibility that has been brought up um, by uh, colleagues of ours, such as Peter Goesby, who ran the headache clinic at UCSF for many years, is hormonal. So obviously we know 
because headaches are more common in young women, and in fact, they're more common in young women who have pituitary tumors um, and pituitary <laughs> gland, pituitary tumors um, affect hormonal production. Um, it's possible that something the tumor is secreting or causing not to be secreted is creating a hormonal imbalance that's precipitating a sensation of headaches. Yeah, we're, we're uh, often surprised by the fact that uh, patients who have, um, say for example, start birth control pills get headaches. And it's long been associated that estrogen supplementation can cause headaches. But I have seen a lot of people who are estrogen deficient with headaches. When you give them estrogens, their headaches resolve. So clearly it's got to be something to do with vascular reactivity uh, as estrogens do promote vascular reactivity or the lack of estrogens that's leading to the vascular type of headache that these, these patients can often have. That's correct. And the reality is with you know thousands of patients uh, with this disease, we're probably experiencing multiple causes of headaches all coalescing into one pool of people with headaches. Um, and that's what's so interesting. It might just be a perfect storm because other brain disorders, I see patients with brain tumors, uh, a variety of brain tumors outside the pituitary, and I don't see nearly as many headaches in those patients. Mm -hmm. So this may be like the perfect anatomic storm allowing um, multiple mechanisms to coalesce into one large population. Now, it, it used to be when I, well, back when I was in my training in 1990 and reading about headaches and pituitary disorders and other mass effects, uh, it was often described that the headache related to a pituitary tumor was at the vertex of the head or the crown of the head, the very top. Uh, but what I saw over time was that it's, some patients have vascular headaches that resolve. Others do have facial pain that's uh, the referred pain with the trigeminal nerve. And I've had a couple of people who have had occipital headaches, which really didn't make much sense to me. Um, what are your thoughts about the different profile or pattern of headaches that we might see in patients with pituitary tumors? Um, what we found is uh, a full variety. We, we conjectured whether certain locations of pain might be more correlated. So we, this was all retrospective, but we did not find a particular location on the head that was more common for the headaches, and nor were the location of the headaches associated with whether the patient got better. What we did find was the duration of the headaches was associated. So if they came to us with headaches that were um, only bothering them for a year or six months, they had a better chance of getting better than if this was a disorder that they had had for 20 years. Because um, whether even if it was related to the pituitary, if it had been going on for 20 years, and it was kind of hard for us to fix it. I think that's an interesting observation. One of the things that I'll often ask my patients who do have headaches in association with pituitary disease that's detected by radiographic studies is, has your pattern of lifetime headaches changed? Are they more frequent? Is there a different pattern? Are they occurring in response to different factors or events? Or are they located in a different place? And I think you're right, those people who do have a new, new headache or a change in the pattern of headaches if they've had chronic headaches are the ones that are more likely to respond to treatment. And I think that's, in, yeah. that's important in managing expectations because many times people that want the goal of surgical therapy to be to resolve my headaches. So what do you tell them uh, when, if a patient mentions, will your operation take care of my headaches? How do, you, how do you manage that expectation with your patients? 
So I, I certainly offer no guarantees. I, I reviewed the data with them. I mean, at the end of the day, data, um, data, data doesn't lie. So I quote, you know, depending on the exact nature of their disease, something close to a 50% chance of getting better. I also discuss their disease outside of the headaches and are there other indications for surgery? And you know that comes down to the natural history. So if you have a benign tumor or benign cyst, uh, headaches were the 50% chance of getting better. And you know you're young enough that the cyst or tumor will likely grow during your lifetime. Then the combination of all that makes me feel comfortable you know, talking about surgery. And as long as they understand that if it doesn't get better, then we'll refer them to a specialist. A lot of specialists who see patients with headaches and read an MRI report want the tumor or cyst addressed before they'll explore medical intervention because those interventions are a huge investment of time and resources by the provider and the patient. And if they're pretty ex experienced providers, they're neurologists, if they look at the MRI, they know the literature, they, they'll be supportive of the procedure as well. But as long as we manage expectations, and let them know that we have other specialists who can help them if we if the surgery fails then usually they're they're you know they're quite realistic and mm -hmm. and they don't get disappointed um regardless of the result so let's talk about uh the so-called worst headache of my life we have that mm. uh occasionally from a patient and that's usually associated with pituitary apoplexy let's talk about that type of headache and the and the different mechanisms and what it might be to have that worst headache of my life, what patients would describe. And so in, in neurosurgery, we associate worst headache of life with bleeding events, bleeding in the brain, um, subarachnoid hemorrhage, pituitary apoplexy um, is one of the sharpest type of head, head pains people can get. Um, often those patients are seen in the emergency room and, and they typically have surgical illness, so we're taking them to the operating room. Uh, but occasionally a patient like that can make it to your clinic in the outpatient setting, and, um, and usually the, the, the disease, the MRI, will reveal a surgical type tumor, large with some hemorrhage, uh, and we usually get them into surgery really quickly to, to provide that relief. Yeah, so do you, do you feel that uh, patients who have headache due to pituitary apoplexy, I mean, they can have headaches due to a number of reasons. Do you feel it's mostly subarachnoid blood or pressure expansion uh, and uh, stretching the dura, etc.? What, what's your understanding of why those people do have the head pain? That's a good question. Uh, I think there's elements of both, although um, probably um, if we look at non-apoplexy situations, uh, just adenomas as they grow, the sort of stretching of the dura will peak at around two centimeters and then start to subside because the dura at a certain point just disintegrates and is no longer stretched. And so I think a smaller adenoma with apoplexy can cause both stretching and subarachnoid blood. But as they get bigger, the, the headache is likely is more likely from subarachnoid hemorrhage and less likely from stretching of the dura. In fact, a smaller tumor doesn't cause as much subarachnoid hemorrhage, so pure stretching of the dura if it's apoplexy, and then as it gets bigger, it's more subarachnoid can, can hemorrhage. You, can you explain subarachnoid as hemorrhage, what, what it is? So the, the, the layers of the brain, we already talked about yes. the dura, it's the outer covering. The middle layer is the arachnoid, which is the spider web. It's very, um, it's mm -hmm. translucent. 
and then the the deepest layer the, then at beyond at the, then at, then the deepest layer is the PO, which is the actual covering of the brain. And so um, <clears throat> blood that's below the arachnoid but outside the PIA is subarachnoid okay. blood. And in the operating room, we see it as blood that is um, under, it's almost like blood in a Ziploc mm -hmm. bag and the arachnoid Between is a Ziploc bag. Yeah. yeah, yeah, got it, thank you. Yeah, and that's often associated with pain, pretty much anything, whether it be bacteria, inflammation, blood can cause a uh, sort of a, a worse headache of your life as well. With some stiffness, stiffness mm -hmm. of the neck and pain when you bend your neck forward. Uh, so that we do see that occasionally with apoplexy. Just a, a word or two on apoplexy. We're talking about hemorrhage within a pituitary tumor, and this often happens when a tumor outgrows its blood supply in the middle of the tumor rots. It rots into a vessel which pumps blood suddenly into the to the dead or necrotic tissue, and uh, the, you get a sudden expansion of the tumor. And one of the common things is the worst headache of my life. It's often associated with double vision because of pressure on one of the, the three main uh, cranial nerves that run in the cavernous sinus that control eye movement. Some patients do get the uh, neck stiffness and uh, and tenderness uh, and photophobia where they have a fear of looking at light. But with that said, um, that's a rare condition. We might see 10 to 12 cases of the 260 that we operate on at UCS every year. Uh, however, pituitary hemorrhage is fairly common. One pathology study showed as many as about 70 percent of patients who have a pituitary tumor removed have pituitary hemorrhage within the gland, but that's not the clinical syndrome of apoplexy. That's just a, the nature of this uh, particular uh, disorder. Um, Manish, let's talk just a little bit more about pituitary apoplexy, then I, have, I want to move on to some other things with you. So risk factors for apoplexy. So what can we tell patients who have pituitary tumors that might decrease their risk for one of these pituitary hemorrhages in the worst headache of their life? So if you happen to know you have a pituitary tumor, um, uh, experiencing uh, just things in your body that can create increased risk for bleeding or being on blood thinners or um, undergoing a surgical procedure with large amounts of blood loss, sometimes patients will have cardiac surgery and wake up blind from pituitary apoplexy uh, in a tumor that they never knew they had. Um, age is a risk factor. As we get older, our risk of bleeding in different parts of our body increases. Um, so those are some of the things, um, the size of your tumor. Um, there is one study in which they observed, um, it's a Japanese study, and they observed a bunch of patients with pituitary adenomas. And if they had tumors bigger than one or one and a half centimeter, uh, a handful of them developed apoplexy while being observed, but none of the microadenomas developed apoplexy while, while being observed. Yeah, your comment about the cardiac surgery reminds me of one of the very first patients I had uh, taken care of during my residency who had pituitary apoplexy. He was uh, underwent bypass surgery, came out with uh, vision problems and hypotension, and was found to have had a pituitary tumor with hemorrhage. Uh, and I've seen a number of people taking heparin for whatever reason, and then also Plavix and other other drugs to inhibit platelet function. You can get apoplexy. There's some literature that suggests that radiotherapy for large tumors could cause apoplexy as well, but uh, I'm, I'm, I've seen necrosis in a few of those people too. Um, so the next thing I wanted you to talk about briefly is we see a small number of patients every year who have pituitary surgery and have an onset of a headache after surgery, and they will relate to no headaches before surgery, had my operation, then developed 
headaches that have been tr disabling after surgery. I wonder if you could talk about the different possibilities as to why people might have post-operative headaches. Yeah, so post-operative headaches happens in about a third of patients who have surgery. Mm -hmm. um, usually, um, it doesn't necessarily start right away, but it kind of starts when they go home. And um, about two thirds of the patients with headaches, it gets better at anywhere from two to six weeks after surgery, but a third of them, it, it sort of stretches out into the second or third month before it goes away. But I've never really seen it become a permanent issue. The theory, theoretical mechanism, one would be what we call a sinus headache. So something about us being in their sinuses has created a, a pressure headache in their face um, or around their neck that um, is just due to inflammation. So, you know, the, the, the part of the pituitary surgery that occurs outside the pituitary within the sinuses um, can bother some patients. Um, and occasionally, if the patient will see an ear, nose, and throat doctor, that can provide some relief in some cases. And then, um, but very rarely would I say it's due to something within the pituitary um, because we're cutting the dura to get into the um, tumor. But sometimes you could imagine cutting that dura can cause some innervative pain um, for some of these patients as well. But that's less likely to be the case, but that's the other possible explanation. Okay. And how about, a, do you think there are any particular vascular causes if someone had a violation of the cavernous sinus to get tumor out, would that, would that potentially be a cause as well? It, that's another category. That's usually likely to cause pain right off the, right when they, in the beginning, even mm -hmm. when they're in the hospital. But I've done a number of operations within the, and around the cavernous sinus, and it's pretty forgiving. Mm -hmm. um, but every so often, if you if you expand your exploration and head out laterally into the cavernous sinuses, you can definitely cause them to feel pressure in the regions of the cranial nerves that are out there laterally, for sure. So I, in, in my practice, I don't manage headaches. I usually refer people to the headache clinic for evaluation because I'm not familiar with the history and physical examination and differential diagnosis. And there are plenty of causes of headaches that are outside the pituitary and different forms of headache that uh, a, a skilled physician can get a history and determine what types of medications to, to treat the patient with a headache, even if they have pituitary disorders. And I, I remember Peter Goadsby, who you mentioned earlier, used to tell patients who came to him with headaches, if he found a tumor, go get your tumor treated first, then I can focus on your headaches. Uh, but uh, with that said, do you do you manage headache uh, syndromes in your patients or do you refer to a, to a specialist for such? I usually refer to a specialist for the same reason um, that you mentioned. I want them to get care from somebody who's got the same expertise and headaches that I have in pituitary surgery. Um, but I make sure I'm, I'm not abandoning them. Obviously, uh, just tell them I'm introducing a new member of the team to help with it. Mm -hmm. and it's usually pretty well received. So headaches are one of the more common mass effect problems that we, we, we've referred to as presenting symptoms of pituitary tumors. While we're talking about mass effects, why don't we cover the other potential symptoms and signs there as a result of the mass of a pituitary tumor? So what would other mass effect symptoms be? Well, broadly speaking, um, these come from things that the tumor can touch in its closest location and cause, as you described, mass effect. So the first, which we've just discussed, is headaches. The second would be hypopituitarism. So if the 
tumor causes pressure on the gland, the lose endocrine function, which is where your area of expertise comes into play. And then the third category is loss of vision as the tumor grows upward and causes pressure on the optic nerve. Uh, the patient will start to lose vision. Typically, they'll lose peripheral vision or side vision first, and then they'll start to lose central vision um, as the tumor gets even bigger. I think those are the most common categories of mass effects. We do see some people who have very large tumors, however, uh, that have hydrocephalus and problems related to that, and other patients who have had... um, uh, I had one patient with brainstem compression who had uh, symptoms and signs of weakness in, in the extremities as a result of that. And then, of course, tumors that grow anteriorly and inferiorly uh, into the sphenoid and posterior nasal passages can have uh, na- nosebleeds. That's a rare initial presenting feature, but I've actually seen it a couple times in my career. Any other mass effect symptoms that you've seen that are rare or one-off type uh, symptoms and signs? Yeah, I've seen, as you mentioned, growing into the sphenoid, I've seen breathing obstruction, so sleep apnea uh, with a tumor. I've seen that before. I've seen, uh, in fact, kind of like headaches. And a lot of people have sleep apnea and get their tumor taken out, and the sleep apnea is better. And, you know, maybe they had sleep apnea for five, six years. And obviously, with acromegaly, you can get sleep apnea for other reasons, for the, for the structural changes, but the tumor itself can cause sleep apnea. Tumors that grow back into the fornices around the third ventricle can cause memory mm-hmm. loss. Um, and then tumors that grow laterally and cause pressure on the cavernous sinus can cause eye movement difficulties or, um, as we mentioned, facial pain mm-hmm. as a different type of headache. Now, when it comes to indications for surgery, you know, we, we, we have these indications, if you will, in quotes that have been published for operation for pituitary adenomas. And... Uh, how do you feel about uh, if a patient has a microadenoma or a small Rathke's cyst, say under a centimeter, uh, but had headaches? Would you consider headaches to be an indication for surgery just to see whether or not treating the lesion could resolve the headaches in a patient who had incapacitation, inability to work, or focus on school studies or whatever? Um, it's a soft indication, It, I mean, but there is literature supporting it, so I would consider it an indication um, but it's an indication that the patient needs to um, educate themselves about. They need to have um, at least tried other treatments for their headaches, maybe simple treatments. They need to understand that the surgery is not a guarantee to help. Um, and they need to have, you know, you mentioned a small tumor or a cyst, but it needs to be at least large enough that that we feel like there's a chance it could grow over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you get into the difference between something that's nine millimeters versus something that's two to three millimeters. Um, because there are some things that are so small, like if you can barely see it, um, Hmm. then I think the risks of surgery, even if they're small might outweigh the benefits, but the risks of surgery are are low in experienced hands. And if you've got something and you're young enough that it could eventually grow, even if it's smaller than a centimeter, then headaches sort of become part of the consideration. Okay. Very good. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about the study you've done or your clinical experience in relation to headaches or other mass effects and their uh, treatment? Well, I think one of the things that you know I wanted to mention just briefly is our study in the context of other studies, um, and I sort of know this literature. And what I found interesting, so our study came out in 2015, and a year later, uh, a group out of Boston with large experience, you know, similar to our experience, 
I published a very similar study that I reviewed actually. And what I really liked about their study is how it synergized nicely with our study. So our study focused on doctor's assessments, right? So did the doctor um, report that the patient had a headache? Did the doctor report that the patient got better? And and that's a good metric. It's it's you know consistent and but there's obviously potential bias. We all want our patients to get better, so maybe doctors would report that the patients are saying they're better, even if the patient might not have quite yeah. said that. I mean, there's inherent bias. What I liked about the Boston study is they reported exactly what the patient said. They gave the patient surveys and just copied their exact words into their database, and they found the exact same thing that about 50% of the patients were getting better. Um, and they did it using patient surveys and patient scores, like there's headache scores. So I think having two different studies like that really supported that these findings um, were probably pretty objective. It's always good when someone verifies your data using a slightly different approach. Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate your perspective on that study as well. Jorge, any thoughts? Well, yeah, you know, I was just reviewing some of sometimes the questions that we get in the comments. It's an interesting um, question about are there any differences in the type of disease that let's say a pituitary adenoma causes and the headaches for example is it, is it higher with acromegaly than Cushing's or uh, prolactinomas or, or uh, you know hypopituitarism so um, we do not find headaches to be more common in functional versus non-functional adenoma patients we also didn't find it to be more common in patients who had hypopituitarism. We looked mm -hmm. for all that. The only thing we did find was that it was more common in patients with Rathke's cleft cysts. Um, and we didn't know what to make of that, but others have found it as well. Um, and there could be some inflammation from the cyst contributing, or it could just be that Rathke's <clears throat> cleft cysts are the most common incidental finding if you get an MRI. Yeah. Hard to say, but... That's what we found. Yeah, that's interesting. And in terms of the other thing that, you know, just because we work so much in trying to um, talk about early diagnosis and, you know, or recognizing the symptoms at the, you know, at the primary care level, as, is there anything in the headache that would point a, a physician or a nurse practitioner or something to say, this, this is not, uh, this is more like a pituitary headache than some other type of headache? Or they're all so general then that it's difficult to, 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 to tell the difference. I think it's difficult I, to yeah. tell. Yeah. The one thing we do see is um, when the headache spills over um, to vision and starts to cause visual scotoma, that's a little more typical of mm -hmm. migraine and pituitary yeah. headache. But if it's just a sharp, throbbing pain anywhere on the head, it, it could be pituitary, but it's hard yeah. to say. So it wouldn't be something that, that you, you go, oh, no, pituitary, red flag, white, <clears throat> white flag, it, it, yeah, like everything in the pituitary world. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. No, nothing, nothing's yeah, easy. You just got to keep looking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nothing's yeah. easy. I think the new patients, uh, or new headaches in patients who've never had headaches, they should have a scan to figure out what the problem is, but... Uh, doesn't, doesn't sure. mean it's going to be a pituitary disease. There are plenty of people who have other other, other distinct pathologies that can cause headache as well. Or or possibly um, different headaches than they're used to having, right? Something that it's it's a different experience in terms of, yeah, of headaches. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To talk a little bit about your comment about uh, disease states and whether they have more headaches, there there is a well-known headache syndrome in people with acromegaly that's very difficult to describe, but uh, patients with acromegaly even when their tumor's gone, 
if they have still biochemical evidence of disease, will have terrible headaches, no change in their headaches. And it turns out that if you treat those patients who are basically tumor negative, biochemically positive after surgery with a somatostatin analog like octreotide subcutaneously, you can resolve the headaches in those patients. And that's often something we'll do is treat with 50 to 100 micrograms a day of octreotide subcutaneous and headaches seem to just go away. Uh, and you get a little bit of biochemical improvement. Sometimes you use another drug as well to, to sort of normalize the IGF-1. But uh, it's interesting, and some have estimated that this is a thalamic gating of pain abnormality that you see in response to having growth hormone and IGF-1 excess. But nobody knows for sure what's going on. Mm. But uh, it is a, a proposed treatment to control the acromegaly better or to, to at least treat with that drug to, to resolve the headaches in those patients. Well, why don't we see if any of the audience members have a particular question for Dr. Agi at this time? Let's see. We don't. Uh, I don't have. Um, I don't have any requests for questions. So I'm sure everybody's listening. Uh, uh, and there's a directions. If you'd like to ask a question, uh, you will see in the uh, in your in your uh, platform there a start live start start a live call in. And you can hit that button, and it'll be pretty self-explanatory. Then we get a message on who you are and the type of question that you want to ask. So, um, uh, I don't. Uh, let's see. So we can start. We can keep keep chatting until we get a question. Yeah, uh, we'll do that. yeah. Um, I have I have another question about. Um, uh, oh, no, I think I asked you already about the type of headaches that would that would uh, generate a t uh, sort of a, a question mark on on somebody's head that that could be pituitary. Could you could you talk a little bit more about that? I think any anything out of as Lewis mentioned, anything that's new for the patient really warrants deeper look, um, which can sometimes mean an MRI, and it might not necessarily be pituitary. But to me, that patients with sharp debilitating headaches that they're not typically getting um, always warrant a close look um, uh, in you know often that these days with ready access to MRIs that can involve an MRI um, and then once the MRI shows something then the question is is it an incidental finding or is it actually related and that's where the doctors get to work yeah let's expand a little bit so I as a neurological surgeon I know that you often We'll occasionally get referrals for patients who have glial tumors like glioblastoma multiforme or maybe even one of the other forms of glial tumors. And 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 I know you've probably done a fair number of meningiomas in your career as well. So do you see a different pattern of headache in patients with, uh, with you will, a brain lesion or a meningeal lesion compared to pituitary tumors? Or are they all sort of the same? Um, I think it's similar, but those patients in general just have less headaches than the non-pituitary brain tumor patients. So it's, it's really hard to generalize. I will say occasionally with a meningioma, I will see somebody point exactly to the spot on their head where the tumor is. Oh, interesting. And, and those patients do, re do really well with surgery. Like the, it, even before you show them the scan, they'll say it's hurting right here. And then you show them the scan and it's like a perfect match. That's interesting. So that's, that has to be a trigeminal uh, mm -hmm. Headache, basically, and the and the pain's referred to the exact site of where it's located. That that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So one other thing that's worth talking about is uh, perception, and we all perceive things differently. 
And, uh, and it's interesting when one uses the word headache, that probably relates to something that one has heard when they were two or three or whatever. And we, we relate headache and head pain. And some patients say, well, I don't have a headache, I have a head pain. Or I don't have a headache, I have head pressure. Where other people who, when you ask them to describe it, they're, they're really having head pressure, not a headache or pain. And as physicians, we have to be careful taking a history and doing a physical because we can uh, have a patient tell us one thing and really the the truth is it's something else. It's like dizziness or wooziness and uh, or off balance. All those mean several different things to each of us. And as a physician, we really want to try to quantify exactly what's going on. So is there a particular way that you might take a history to determine whether patients have truly having a headache? Um, um, well, the, the first question is just, is it purely a, um, are they, are they dizzy? Because, you know, being dizzy can be a primary complaint that can make you feel like you have a headache. Um, and then, uh, is it associated with vision loss? Cause, or and is, is it, is it pressure behind the eyes or is it actual pressure on the surface of the head? Um, and so I think just getting more details about where they feel the pain, is it in their face, is it at the top of their head, the back of their head, and localizing it can really help um, understand what they're experiencing. And sometimes they're just dizzy and, and they're getting, their head hurts when because they're dizzy, which is mm-hmm. a, a pretty important distinction. Mm-hmm. And I've heard patients say that their head hurts and when I have inquired in detail really what they're explaining is stress and sort of the pressure they feel is stress and they feel like they have a headache. It's really just stress pressure and not really pain whatsoever. I think it's important to realize that uh, if you're a patient, when you're talking to your physician, try to be very specific about what you feel and use words that give a character to what you feel uh, rather than just saying headache. And uh, that will help everybody uh, be able to sort of be on the same page about exactly what the patient's experiencing and maybe conduct additional studies depending on the findings. I also think this is one area where um, using interpreters is very helpful for patients. You, you may have a patient for whom English is not their first yeah. language and um, I think having a professional interpreter rather than having family interpret mm-hmm. is also important because so much of uh, pain um, is, uh, is best conveyed in a language the patient is comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's critical. So here's a, a, just an interesting question that comes up, but, and I think you probably answered it, but I'm going I'm to ask you again. Uh, what does a pituitary headache feels like? And is that an answerable question? Or is it... Um, I mean, you, you you covered all the the different possibilities, but the the question is interesting. Uh, it's particularly to hear from you that you know, obviously, with all the research and knowledge that you have in this, can you just sort of say, okay, this is something that feels a little different? Um, it's um, it's it's it, there isn't a classic pituitary headache. I think, really, it's a it's a large. Um, constellation Mm -hmm. of headaches that collectively, you know, and we couldn't find anything that we could say classically defines it. And that's what makes it so hard to treat. 
Because um, it's yeah. a, such a heterogeneous yeah. term. Yeah, I'm asking. I the question again because that's a question that we hear often, you know, in the comments or, or, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, like a lot of questions about a pituitary disease, they're difficult to answer because it depends. It, yeah, no, it's exactly right. So it might be curious to have a, uh, a. Uh, a meeting with a headache clinic and see if they could develop an instrument that would allow us to give a questionnaire to people. Do you have headache? Yes or no. If they do, then they go through a series of questions to typify the history and then uh, to correlate size, location of tumor. Um, so that then... that is an area of the literature. Yeah, we we could do we could definitely do that. That's a one deficiency in the literature yeah. that I think um, um, warrants further because there's a lot of good patient-based surveys for headaches. Yeah, we may actually be able to define what Jorge is asking. This is a pituitary headache in 65% mm-hmm. of people. And the other 20% or next 20% and then the remaining bits, this is sort of what they have. So it's, it might it, be useful to, to treating physicians to understand who to refer for a pituitary MRI. It, it's always that thing that sort of puts a question mark on a physician, on a question, you know, that physician has a, that to suspect early something that may not otherwise be suspected uh, until later, uh, obviously. So, mm-hmm. Is the research continuing uh, with headaches and pituitary disease? Is there, is there a lot of activity in, in there or is something that's not being studied too much? Uh, um. I think there's always room for more mm-hmm. research, but it's definitely an area, an area of interest for a lot of people because, um, you know, it's so common and we really need to do better for these patients in terms of being able to um, select and, and uh, the ones that we can help. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't see, I don't see any other uh, questions here. Um, uh, So before we conclude, uh, Manisha, I wonder if you could just tell us about your your training and your history and the and the career that you've had and the types of things that you address. Just because there may be patients out there who are looking for a good physician and want to know more about you. Yeah. Um, so I uh, trained. At, I did an MD PhD at Harvard, and then did residency at the Mass General in, in Boston, one of the Harvard teaching hospitals, for seven years and. Um, became interested in pituitary tumors towards the end of my training and spent a lot of time uh, with Brooks Swearingen, who was my first mentor as a pituitary surgeon, um, routinely attended his conferences, his clinics, his presentations, and was by his side for the last two years of my residency, getting uh, one-on-one uh, in-depth training, and then came out here and joined the team at UCSF um, and began seeing patients with pituitary disease. Um, and uh, partly as a, as a PhD, as a scientist, I've been interested in um, not just being able to help patients with surgery, but um, understand their disease through research. And um, um, research you know, can include clinical research or uh, research in the laboratory. I, I do a lot of work studying pituitary at a biologic or cellular uh, level and um, hope to someday um, better understand what causes pituitary tumors and um, in addition to being able to remove them surgically, um, really truly uh, understand everything about them. 
Was there any one thing when you were uh, in your practice that said, oh, this is really interesting? I, I remember your story, Lewis, when you saw one patient that was so fascinating that it just kind of took you to to uh, to uh, neuroendocrinology or pituitary. Mm-hmm. Was there anything in your experience, Dr. Aggie, that said, okay, this is it, this is really cool and interesting? As a patient, for me, you know, not have, having very little knowledge of of, of uh, endocrinology before I had my pituitary. The science is fascinating. I mean, it's honestly, it's one of the most fascinating things in the human body, how this whole thing works, you know? So I can see if you're, you know, in the medical field, this is something that would be, and you're interested in science, this is something that would be so interesting. Um, one of the things I always found, uh, one case that, I had that was sort of similar to what Lewis had was a patient with a really small sort of microadenoma, five to six millimeters, debilitating headaches. And I was pretty skeptical, um, but, you know, managed expectations. And, you know, ultimately she wanted surgery and, you know, endorsed that this was not the life she was used to. She only had headaches for the year before she mm-hmm. saw me, but nobody would see her or touch her. And then I took her to the operating room and even in the OR, it was, it was very strange. It was a small sort of gelatinous tumor, but it, it squirted out under pressure. It came out, it, it greeted me. I didn't have yeah, to go find clean. it. <laughs> and then um, she woke up and swore she felt better, was incredibly grateful. I mean, I've had patients who I feel like I've literally like saved them from actual brain mm-hmm. death. And, and this patient who had a small tumor is probably on my, you know, one of the people who's most grateful yeah. to me and, you know, for what I did. And, and it really, you know, drilled home, you know, how headaches are life and death. When you, when you have them, like it, it, it takes away everything. Yeah. And then nine years later, she said her headaches came back and they rescanned her and the tumor had grown back. We took it out again and the same exact thing happened. And, and now she's six years of headache free and hopefully it'll last, but it, it sort of she went through it twice and it it proved to be um, relievable with surgery yeah. both times. Oh, that's great. Tell us about your PhD work. What, what was your area of interest in your thesis? And uh... so I worked on developing viruses to treat brain tumors, um, and that's a approach that works better for um, it's essentially gene therapy, but it works better for rapidly dividing malignant tumors. So it's not necessarily an approach for pituitary tumors, but um, it's given me some experience in molecular biology and genes and gene transfer, which has helped me um, understand the pituitary because ultimately pituitary tumors are a cancer just like anything else. And, you know, I think we all know some patients with huge pituitary tumors and I feel like they get, um, uh, they get, they should be given sort of a, a, a diagnosis that's as, as serious as, as um, glioblastoma or other malignant tumors, and and but my PhD was on using viral gene mm-hmm. therapy for tumors. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today. We want to have you back. A couple of topics I can think about to discuss with you. One would be the WHO classification of pituitary adenomas, and Very how we define a, and how we define a cancer because I don't necessarily agree with the WHO classification <laughs> when you start thinking about some of these lesions and what they do. Uh, and uh, you mentioned the word cancer there, so I think that we should have you back and discuss that topic and, and plenty of others as well. We appreciate you joining us for this first ever uh, talk radio through Pituitary World News, and 
wish you well. So yeah. thank you again. I, I, I should mention again that, and I think you mentioned it, uh, Lewis, in the in the intro. But the um, the the video that Dr. Agi recorded for us, it's by far the highest rated uh, and most v watched video in our YouTube channel. And I don't. The last time I looked, there was something like twenty six thousand views on it. And I can't remember if. I mean, I'm, I'm going to look at it again because it cons consistently gets. Uh, and I remember, I think you recorded it with an iPhone in your office. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that exactly. was great. So that yeah. goes to show you that when the content is great, you know, it doesn't matter who recorded it and how you record it. It was yeah. wonderful. We would so, encourage our listeners to go back and find that video. And yes, watch that definitely. As well as a supplement to this, uh, uh, this episode. Yeah, actually, we'll put, a, we'll put a link to the video when we publish the podcast of this, uh, of this uh, uh, live show. So uh, you have a, a chance to uh, see it there. Yeah. Well, we plan for another show next week. We are in uh, the process of developing our list of potential invitees. Uh, I think in the, in the coming months, we're going to talk about things such as diabetes insipidus and uh, an effort to perhaps help healthcare providers understand that diabetes insipidus is not diabetes mellitus and uh, perhaps also review uh, with uh, some folks, uh, some efforts that are underway to maybe change the designation of that particular disorder so yeah. that it would be more clear to healthcare providers. And we'll talk about growth hormone deficiency, probably a little bit about uh, head trauma and uh, hypopituitarism and just numerous other things in addition to the pituitary uh, tumor classification that we just mentioned with Dr. Augie. Yeah, And we encourage uh, our listeners to send us, again, like we said, uh, comments and suggestions and on, on, uh, on the types of things that we can discuss. And again, if you if you miss it, uh, you'll be able to uh, hear it in a podcast. So thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Agi, for your time. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Jorge, as usual, I appreciate your uh, heroic efforts to uh, <laughs> make everything in Pituitary World News uh, work uh, smoothly and uh, to get the word out you're doing tremendous jobs well listen if you would have told me 10 years ago that we'd be doing a live radio talk show type thing I'd say forget it that's not going to happen <laughs> yeah remember it started with a TV show yeah so yeah so the the story is that uh, I was asked to be interviewed for a TV show about an interesting patient for the health segment on the local news and, yeah, and I had just I had just recently seen Jorge, and I thought, well, gee, who would be interesting? I said, I like that guy; he's pretty cool. <laughs> so he'd probably be good on TV. So um, they interviewed us both. I think uh, it was a very good show, and it certainly launched our friendship and our uh, thoughts of working together to try to do something to make a difference out there in the world. Yeah, uh, so that yeah. people can get good information and and uh, help educate their families and yeah. their themselves and their providers about uh, different caveats and aspects of pituitary disease. So it's been fun and this is a, a new direction of our journey. We'll continue to do podcasts and uh, interviews and have a patient conference and things of the like. In fact, we talked about our next patient conference maybe being this platform uh, until sort of uh, COVID goes away and we can get together live again. And I think this platform would work for a conference because we can have as many guests uh, on at a, at a time yeah, as we like. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this is a really cool uh, platform. I think it's going to work 
work very well for uh, for podcasts and for this type of show, and I think for any sort of uh, webinar or or presentation, um, educational video would be great. So, yeah, we've talked about doing a roundtable with Drs. Augie and uh, perhaps Kunwar and maybe Dr. Goldschmidt to talk about the the different types of surgical procedures so that people can be informed about uh, uh, the risks and benefits of the different approaches to surgery for the pituitary. And that's another thing I want to rope you in on, Manish, to have a good round table that we can record for uh, uh, listeners, uh, for those who have pituitary disease now, had it in the past, and will have it in the future, something that's an enduring material. Talk yeah. about the great things we can do at UCSF yeah. with the different approaches. Sounds terrific. Yeah, we're excited about this. I think this could be. I don't know. What do you think, Doctor Agi, about this sort of discussion that just sort of brings the, the uh, uh, you know, the, the subject of pituitary through a different channel, maybe a little differently than it's been done before. You know, in a conversational way. Uh, f- from my point of view, it seems very educational. I think if anything, it just may wake up some interest in people. You know, to learn more about their disease and. Um, you know how to improve their quality of life or advocate for themselves those sort of things i i agree it's um it's a it's a nice format i think uh it's I, you know too often we get trapped into giving lectures and talking at people yeah. rather than talking to each other yeah yeah it's terrific anyway so uh for our audience uh, tune in next week uh, next Thursday at three, and we're going to be announcing the subject on Pituitary World News uh, in the next uh, day or so, and you'll be getting the uh, the through the social media and through links uh, through Pituitary World News, and the podcast will probably be published uh, you know in the next couple of days after we get a chance to hear it and publish it and edit it a little bit maybe. So, any any Lewis, any closing thoughts? No, I want to thank those uh, listeners for joining us, whether hearing us now or in the, the version, uh, the podcast version, and I encourage you to uh, try to listen every week, give us your feedback, and uh, participate as much as you can. This is live talk, so we want to hear from you and uh, make it your show uh, about pituitary disorder. So let us know what you think, and uh, please participate. Terrific. Well, thank you both again, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Take care. Thank you. You too. Thank you, Dr. Aggie. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.